This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me, I'm Alex Bennett. And our latest chapter is entitled, Steve Shecky and CNET. Well, as we left you last time, my best friend in the whole world, by the name of Paul Montgomery, who ran a company called Play Incorporated, died. He died at the age of 39, and uh, that was in 1999, and to this day, I miss the guy. Because if anybody was able to kind of make my dreams come true, and if anybody ever truly believed in me and was willing to put his money where his mouth was, it was Paul. We had started a thing called Play TV together. And we can't say it was successful or not successful. It was successful in that it worked, okay? And became really the first regularly broadcasting broadcast network. Not just audio, but video, uh, I think, uh, in the history of the Internet. So, anyway, he died. And so did Play Incorporated. First, Play TV went. And then the rest of the company kind of fell apart, too. It was all in the middle of that whole blowout that happened between 1999 and 2001, uh, maybe slopping over a little bit into 2002, where all of Silicon Valley just crashed, and every company associated with it crashed as well, and Play Incorporated was an example of that. It got sold off to some other people, and it moved to the Midwest, and I maybe even to this day still exists. But anyway, that was... Uh, uh, a real shock to me, and it also cost me about uh, $50,000 that I was owed and never got, and uh, it just, it was a very depressing kind of thing. Well, I, but I did have another job, but I want to get to that in a moment, because at this point, at this juncture, I have to talk to you about two other friends that I had. You know, when I say the term best friend, it's not a term I use lightly. I don't think I've had more than a handful of best friends in my entire life. And you tend to have more when you're younger than when you're older. Uh, the ones who are your best friends are those who are older with you and have lasted that long. You know, one day you go, how long have I known you? And you, you suddenly say 30 years. And you go, well, you know, it's got to be a best friend, right? But I had two other best friends at the time. And they play importantly in the future of this story and how it develops in the, in the next couple of chapters. One was my friend Steve Gruberg. Let me explain Steve. Steve I met because he was working on cable television when I was doing Midnight Blue. And he did a show called The Groob Tube. And it was a weekly show in which, God knows, if I had to describe to you what The Groob Tube was, it would be absolutely impossible. It was Steve just being Steve with people calling the program, and uh, he did it week in and week out, first on public access and then on a public lease, uh, where he never, I think, ever had a sponsor, but he paid for that time to get his show on the air. And um, uh, But what happened was I met him at a time when he and his wife had just broken up. And I had known Steve peripherally through uh, cable access. Um, but uh, I, I met with him one day, and he told me the sad tale of woe about how his wife had uh, 
had left him and they or the he, they had broken up but I think she had actually left him and left him kind of in the lurch because he didn't have any money didn't have a job at the moment and I said to him well yeah, I'm running this thing called Midnight Blue and we just went commercial uh, and we could sure use an ad salesman and he said I'll take it and I knew that he was capable of selling ad time because Steve was what we call a handler he was a guy who could just start up a conversation with just about anybody, and probably if he had something to sell them, will have sold it within about the first 10 minutes, okay? And so he came to work at Midnight Blue. And as a result, we became close friends. Um, you know, it, it, the kind of close friends you have where you're working every day with them, and then you find yourself after work spending time with them. And um, we just became the best of friends and maintained this friendship. I left uh, New York, and we still maintain this friendship. And any time I came to New York, I would always make sure to see Steve. And in many cases, I was invited to stay at his place rather than have to go to some little hotel somewhere. And, and Steve and I maintain this relationship, you, you know, where you call each other every week and you talk. And he was always just a good friend. Now, he's going to play into my life a little bit later on, and I'll show you exactly how much I owe to Steve Gruberg. All right? The other best friend was a guy by the name of Richard Sheckman. And uh, he became known as Shecky. And how he became known as Shecky, let me, well, first, let me explain how we met. I was a birthday gift for him. Uh, I had this friend, um, uh, Steve Weiner, and he and his girlfriend uh, knew me and knew that this guy, Richard Sheckman, who they were friends with, was a big fan of mine. So they decided to have dinner for Shecky and to have me show up as a gift for Shecky. All right? Uh, he was not known as Shecky, by the way, at this point. And so I showed up to dinner. And that was the first time I met Shecky. And Shecky and I became the best of friends. Uh, he was just the kind of guy that I just always was talking to. I would call him up or we'd see each other or whatever. But he, um, he, was, uh, uh, he was a film fanatic. Um, and, and what he did is he collected old films. Now, in those days, let me tell you, it was not the legalist of things to own films. Because if you own, if owned a film, um, you owned something that belonged to a movie company. And I remember that they would have these 60 millimeter prints they would strike of films. And they were just such fans of films that they would trade them with each other and so on. Even though doing so was kind of illicit. I remember they used to have this thing uh, down on uh, on like 9th Street around 42nd Street where they would all get together on a Saturday afternoon and out of the back of their cars they would trade reels of film or they would sell reels of film and then they would buy reels of film and then they would all go somewhere and watch movies together. And uh, this, was, this is who Shecky was. He was like this. Uh, he had gotten his degree in finance, but his love 
was film, collecting films, old films, and he had reels upon reels upon reels. And you know, if it weren't for people like Shecky back in the day, a lot of films to this day would have been lost. Because movie companies back then, as much as they didn't want you to have a copy of their movie, didn't take very good of the ones they had. And so the best copies sometimes of long lost films were in the hands of these collectors. So they, they kind of, he kind of became a hero of mine in that respect. But anyway, I, uh, I then moved out to California. And in the meantime, uh, he went to work for a television show. Steve Weiner had started working for a TV show as a writer. And they needed like a film consultant, somebody to come in who knew where to find like film clips and things like that. And um, Steve Weiner recommended Shecky. And so Shecky went to work for the program. Well, the program happened to be Late Night with David Letterman. Okay. Um, and um, this was when they were at NBC. And he started to work for him. And he kept working for him until, well, Dave just went off when? <laughs> you know, uh, 30 years later, 32 years later. Uh, they, um, yeah, uh, he was with them for that whole time. Maybe came to the Letterman show about six months into their late night NBC run. Okay. Uh, and so I moved out to California, but Shecky was the kind of guy I called him once a week, you know, and we would just talk. And anytime I came out to New York, I had to see Shecky and I had to hang out with Shecky. And Shecky, again, was now another person who I could put in the category of best friend. So my best friends up to that point were Shecky, Steve, Paul Montgomery, and also Bruce David, who worked for Hustler Magazine. These were who I called my best friends. Uh, it, is, it is a shame, well, there, there's more story to tell, so I don't want to ruin it ahead of time. But I got to tell you, uh, these are people who I just felt a wonderful kinship to and a closeness to. You know, and it, the kind of friendship you have that's easy, you know, it's not complicated. You don't have to work at it. It just is. And uh, to this day, for instance, Shecky remains, my, well, my best friend. And um, I'll tell you, well, uh, I don't want to spoil the story. I don't want to tell the story ahead of time. But Steve eventually died, and we'll talk about that. So of the four best friends that I had, Shecky is the one that's still alive. And as I've said to him, you son of a bitch, you better not go dying on me because I've, you know, I've, I have no best friends left except you. And uh, we still see each other, call each, I call him once a week, try to go over there and see him. Sometimes he comes to New York City and he lives out in Queens. And uh, usually we spend New Year's Eve together. He comes out to our place and we have a little New Year's Eve gathering. And then everybody leaves before midnight because we're old people. We can't stay up that late. But I got to tell you, the love I felt for Steve and the love I felt over the years for Shecky uh, is something I consider a blessing. Because very few times in your life do you feel that kind of closeness to somebody. 
And I'm the kind of person who is not, you know, I don't go out and make friends easily. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a kind of a uh, standoffish that way. And these people I just absolutely loved. And um, Shecky, still with us. Shecky, still a friend. Uh, somebody I really just think the world of. And uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I cherish his friendship. I'll tell you what happened to Steve later on, but it's not time to do that yet. So now what we are is we're, we're at the point where I'm no longer doing Play TV. But there was something that happened shortly before Play TV collapsed. I got a call from this guy named Brian Cooley, and he was working over at CNET. Now, if you don't know what CNET is, CNET is like a technical technology news operation was back then has been since and they had taken over a radio station well they, here's how they, you can take over a radio station they didn't own it uh they leased it and that's something that goes on in this business a lot today where somebody's bought six eight radio stations in a market and one of them is a dog so if somebody wants to lease it why not you know you're not going to make money out of it any other way and they had leased a pretty good channel. And um, they, uh, they, he called me, and he said, look, we've got the radio operation, and it's having a lot of trouble. We, we don't even show up in the rating books. We were so low in ratings. But, you know, I, I know you're a great broadcaster, and you're an entertaining broadcaster, and you're a known name in the Bay Area. Would you come over and come to work for CNET Radio? So I immediately thought about it, and I said, well, you know, I'm still on the tail end of making money at, uh, at, at uh, uh, play, and uh, now they were offering me a, a fairly decent amount of money to come do this thing. At, at, I think it was a two-hour, yeah, two-hour, three-hour show uh, every morning, Monday through Friday. And so I said, sure. So when play collapsed, I had this job in my pocket, and I was doing it. Now, I got to tell you, there's a real problem going into a radio station like CNET with such a narrow format. I mean, when your format is technology news 24-7, you go, well, wait a minute, there's something I got to, you know, I got to do something with this to make it a little more interesting. And the fact was, I got to tell you, this maybe was one of the dullest radio stations I ever heard in my life. Uh, Brian Cooley was about the only person who really kicked ass on that station uh, because he was a good broadcaster. He did a morning show and he did news of technology. Well, it, that kind of fits. But then what do you do the rest of the day? Do you keep talking about the same old thing and telling the news of what's going on in Silicon Valley? So um, I decided that what I would do is I would play with it, you know. I would make it more playful. And how I would do that is I would, uh, you know, I'd do things like I had Wacky Web Wednesday. And what we would do is we would uh, talk to people who had weird websites, you know. And we did a lot of different things like that. And the show was doing okay. In fact, for a station that never got in the rating books, they finally did, at least for three hours a day. And it was my show. Uh, I got to tell you, though, you want to blow your brains out 
when every morning you're going in and talking about the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, and the only thing that happened that was worthwhile to this whole format was the collapse of Silicon Valley. And that happened in about, uh, at least for, uh, as I remember it at CNET, uh, towards the end of 2000 into 2001. All of a sudden, everything went bottom up. You know, it was a um, enthusiasm in that marketplace and the overpaying for things that finally made the whole thing collapse. I mean, for instance, people would come up with an idea. I'm launching an IPO, right? And we're going to uh, sell uh, seltzer water to the world. And it's seltzerwater.com. And then people would just run in like crazy and throw money at your feet. And when you put out an IPO, and then, of course, you know, uh, you would give glowing reports of how much seltzer you were selling. And uh, hopefully, you know, and people would just, they were rushing to give money to anything in that sector, not realizing that most of it didn't, you know, make sense. For instance, I'll give you a good example. Pets.com. You remember Pets.com? Well, they were a company who would ship you dog food, among other things. Uh, you use the internet to get your dog food, and then it would be shipped to you, and it'd get there in three or four days. And you had to stop and think for a moment. Well, wait a minute. I got a dog at home. He wants to eat right now. He doesn't want to wait for his pet food. Subsequently, uh, they were also selling something else at Pets.com. They had a mascot, which was a hand puppet. They sold more hand puppets than they did product <laughs> at Pets.com. But this was a perfect example of a company that people were just throwing money at to be part of it because it sounded like such a great idea pet food on the internet and i mean it was one bad idea after another and you had to know that eventually the walls would come come tumbling down and tumbling down they did i mean i was right there in the middle of that crash and you've never seen anything like that all of a sudden, we didn't have as many advertisers as we had. Every story we were reporting was about another company that was going under. Um, on uh, uh, what was it, uh, the, the big financial district in Montgomery Street in San Francisco. You could literally drive down that street, and if you needed office furniture, just pick it up off the street. And this wasn't just cheap old office furniture that people were throwing away. This was the expensive stuff. You know, the Aeron chairs, you remember them? Those things ran at least 1200 bucks a piece, even back then. And desks and whatever. And they're just sitting out on street corners because people whose companies just went belly up had nowhere else to do use it, uh, you know, to put it when they were being kicked out of their offices because they couldn't pay the rent anymore. I mean, it was just, it was amazing what was happening. Uh, and I was sitting there right in the middle of it. This was, CNET was ground zero for this whole thing. Uh, so that made it a little more interesting. But here was the problem. CNET was the big technological news operation. 
they relied on advertisers. The only advertisers they got were like people who had businesses in Silicon Valley. In fact, I remember one ad that I ran. I ran it live. I couldn't keep from laughing every time I read this. They, they said, we're looking for people to be part of our company. We're looking for technological specialists, blah, 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 blah. They would do the pitch. Prices are good. You know, we pay well. We have health and services and blah, 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 blah. And then the last line was, and we even have dry cleaning on premises. <laughs> That's what these companies figured was important. But anyway, CNET was the repository of advertising for all these companies. And so they had to put a bright spin on the whole thing. And I'm sitting there going, how can you put a bright spin on this thing? It's absolutely terrible what's going on here. This is, this is literally a, a, a bloodbath that's going on in the financial area of the Bay Area. And one company after another, after another, after another, after another. Now, in the middle of all of this, my bosses had seen it. Not Brian Cooley. Cooley loved what I did, okay? Uh, but there were other people there, and they were running the place, and they had egos. You, you can't believe their egos. They were amazing. They're not there anymore. CBS finally bought up the place, and I think dumped these other guys. But they had this ego saying, we know all about broadcasting. We know all about radio. Well, they didn't know anything about that. All they knew was how to build a company, okay? And they came to me one day, or Brian had to come to me one day with the sad news. He said, uh, we want you to quit being so silly and become more of a technological professional, a technology professional. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, no more of the wacky Web Wednesdays and stuff. We want you to report on the real news that's happening. And then the guy who was running the place, uh, not Brian, comes in and we sit down talking. And he says to me, yeah, we want to play now. We've decided that our whole focus should be to play to the Internet professional. And I looked him straight in the face and I said, I don't know if you've looked out there on the street, but this thing you call the technological professional, the technology professional, doesn't exist anymore. They're all out of work. You know, there's no nothing going on. No, we want you to do that. Well, you know, if I wanted to blow my brains out before because of the same subject every day, now I wanted to blow my brains out, but to also stick a noose around my neck just in case the bullet didn't work. This was, I got to tell you, the most boring time I have ever had in my life in a broadcasting organization. Yes, the time before they told me to become more of a broadcast, more of a technological professional uh, uh, was fun, but it wasn't fun anymore. And I had brought somebody with me, by the way, from play because she needed a job and I liked her and, you know, uh, she was my friend. And I, I kind of felt at that point that I wanted to make sure she always had work. And you remember Christy? Well, she was working with me at, uh, at play because she needed a job because she was leaving her husband and she needed some money. And now she was out of a job because play had crashed. So I said, 
come on over here. So they took her on as a producer for my show. So she was with me at the time. Well, none of this really worked out very well. And after about a year at CNET, they said, eh, we think it's time we part ways. And I said, yeah, I, I think maybe it is time that we parted ways. And we did. But before I, I, I completely live, leave CNET, let me tell you about a quick story that happened to me. One morning, I am sleeping. I'm, you know, I'm, I usually got up around uh, oh, eight o'clock to get to my, uh, uh, get to the station to do the show at ten. And my phone rings, and it wakes me up, and it's Shecky, and Shecky says, "Have you seen what's going on on TV?" I said, "No." He said, "Turn it on." And I turned it on, and there was the World Trade Center, smoking. And as I'm watching it, I'm saying, "What's happening, Shecky? What, 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 what is it? Is there a fire in there?" He says, "No, a plane crashed into it." I said, "A plane crashed into it?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "What do you think it is?" He says, "It looks like the world's most horrible airplane accident." And as we're talking, a second plane goes into the World Trade Center. And I said, this isn't an accident anymore. You know, this is terrorism. And we were both just amazed by it. And I said, I got to go. Because my first instinct, whenever anything like this happened in broadcasting, was I got to get to the radio station. Because the radio station's got to report the story. And I remember going down there, and Brian was on the air, and he went to a commercial break, and I said, look, Brian, I'm here. Anything you need, you know, let's get on this story, and let's make sure we report it properly. That event was something that also helped to tone what was going on in Silicon Valley. You know, I told you before that there was nothing worse than having an earthquake go off when I was out of work because it made it harder to get work. And when this thing happened, this hit the whole economy. I mean, you know. And, and what was happening in Silicon Valley was falling apart. So anyway, um, that's what happened. I left CNET Radio, and I wondered what was going to happen next. Well, within a few weeks, uh, maybe a month or two at the most, CNET Radio decided to stop doing business. So they gave the stick back to Clear Channel, who owned the radio station, basically owned the transmitter, owned the license and all of that. And, of course, they had just, I think it was something like a weekend to figure out what they were going to do because CNET said, uh, we're, we're out of here. And then on uh, Monday, they had to have something going on the air there. And immediately, I get a call from my old general manager from Live 105, the original general manager, Ed Cramp, and he is now the general manager of this radio station. And he said, would you like to do me a favor? And I said, what? He said, I can't tell you that you got a job. This is all temporary. We don't know what we're going to do. But would you like to come over? 
and do a talk show starting Monday morning on uh, this radio station, which was, uh, I believe, KNEW was the name of the, of the, of the channel. And um, I said, yeah, sure, why not? He said, good. He said, uh, you know, I'll get, have all the information for you, how to get in and all of that and so on and so forth. So here's kind of the strange thing that happened. I was fired from that channel. That channel then went out of business. And when it went out of business, it went back to Clear Channel, who owned the, the, the station, and they had to put something on it, so I replaced the very station I had been let go from. Stranger things have happened in my show business career, but that certainly was one of the moments that I went, gee, you know, this kind of feels good. This kind of feels terrific because the person who's replacing the station that got rid of me is me. Things couldn't be better. Uh, no, they weren't. And we'll tell you why next time. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett.